Hi, I'm George Bodarki, host of WFUV's Cityscape. I'm excited to be teaming up with the Brooklyn Public Library to bring you a special series about four communities that made Brooklyn the vibrant, diverse borough it is today. So from WFUV and the Brooklyn Public Library, this is Building Brooklyn. Let's imagine for a moment that it is a brisk morning in November of 1995, And on your way to Canarsie's famed Rockaway Parkway shopping strip for some last-minute holiday gifts, you notice something out your car window that makes you do a double take. The Belt Parkway is dotted with these big public housing buildings against the skyline, but the structures you think you've just seen are less familiar to you. You maybe have only seen them in textbooks. You make a mental note. Stop by the Seaview Diner on your way home. Did you just see some teepees right next to it? According to articles published in the Canarsie Courier, a local paper that is in our Brooklyn Newsstand archives at the library, for three months in late 1995, members of the Mohawk community in Canarsie and interested members of the public erected a teepee and a sweat lodge on a neglected plot of land along the Belt Parkway. The aim of the, quote, TP village was to educate Canarsie residents about various Native American cultures and traditions. The city's Parks Department granted the Native American Longhouse Society of New York a two-month permit to hold these events before the land was to be returned to the city. But the organizers envisioned the future of the space as a museum and a community center to enlighten Brooklynites about its native occupants and their history. Once the permit deadline had passed, many organizers hoped that the TP village would remain and grow, but the city removed the structures. A few residents and organizers voiced their concern about the manner in which all of this took place and likened it to the history of forced removal of Native people by European colonizers. Mr. Cross the Rivers was one such person. He was raised between Canarsie and Mohawk land in Canada and was the group's medicine man. In a January 1996 New York Times article, he said, They took away my church. It was a General Custer type thing. That's the way I took it. Had I lived back then, they would have had no mercy on my people. 200 years ago, they would have killed everyone in sight. Cross the River's history is a journey our listeners will be familiar with as we've explored the Mohawk ties between Brooklyn and Canada's Ganawage Reservation in the first episode of Building Brooklyn. For our final episode of our Borrowed miniseries, we're returning to Brooklyn's native roots and inhabitants as a way to reframe our conversations about how communities are literally built. Throughout Brooklyn's history, there have been conflicts and compromises about who belongs in a certain area, who owns the land, whose stories get to be told. Those narratives are present in Canarsie, too. Today on Borrowed, we'll look at the stories of Canarsie from the native Lenape people who gave the neighborhood its name, to the community of Canarsie's Black residents in the 19th century, up to the racial unrest in the 1990s, around the time the teepees and sweat lodge went up next to the Belt Parkway. I'm Adra Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. This is our final episode of Building Brooklyn, a mini-series brought to you by Borrowed at Brooklyn Public Library. Hi there, Virginia again. I'm the producer and co-writer of Borrowed, and I'm joining once more as we finish off our mini-series. Hey, Virginia. Glad to have you back on the mic. Thanks, Audra. So I wanted to give a bit of context to the Canarsie teepees that we started this episode with, because the teepee village that went up in 1995 is a bit of a confusing cultural moment. 
and we wanted to be clear about that story and why we're telling it. So this was a project from the Native American Longhouse Society, a group whose members belonged mostly to the Haudenosaunee Nation, whose ancestral homeland is in northern New York State and Canada. The Teepee Village project was meant to increase the visibility of Native American culture and history, and to educate Canarsie residents about the environment at large. And we just want to mention that teepees are not a traditional dwelling for the Mohawk or the Lenape, actually. The Plains Indians used them in the Midwest, but they're a recognizable symbol of Native American lore, which is why the group erected them. Right, and we wanted to tell this story because it's about a group of people trying to rewrite the dominant history of Brooklyn to bring a different story to the foreground. And we also want to be clear that the Lenape, rather than the Mohawk, are the linguistic and cultural group that first called Brooklyn and the surrounding area home. In our first episode of this miniseries, we spoke to the co-founders of the Lenape Center, an organization committed to continuing Lenape presence through arts, culture, and community. Today, many Lenape people live in five federally recognized nations in Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and Ontario, but Lenape place names remain here in Brooklyn, on our streets and our neighborhoods, and Canarsie is one of those names. Here's Adrian Kumans, Lenape Center co-founder. So within this region, this Lenape Hoking territory, one sees many place names that are still found today that reference Lenape communities, villages, and really are a testament to how populated this region once was. Many of the place names are not sub-tribes as it's often thought about or subgroups, but really Lenape communities uh, that were referenced by a specific geographic trait. The name Canarsie may translate to fenced-in place in the Lenape language, but starting in the early 1600s, the Dutch and other European colonists began to occupy the land and killed native Lenape people through combat and disease, forcing most of the remaining Lenape off their ancestral homeland. Here's Joe Baker, the executive director of the Lenape Center and another co-founder. We, as a result of this genocide and forced removal have found ourselves continuously moving for hundreds of years um, through forced removals into the western reaches of this country as the American dream, uh, quote, end quote, uh, became visualized here on the East Coast. I think for the American people, starting with the past and the truth of the past, is problematic. It's problematic in that it, it tells a story that is violent, that is uh, corrupt, that forced people and families, young and old, to leave their homeland. And you know, that's, an, that's not an easy thing for people to want to hear or, or really want to embrace. So if we can begin with that difficult history and accept the truth of it, and then begin to move into uh, a better understanding of the place that supports life for us today, then, then I, think, uh, I think we can make great progress because then we can heal and move forward. 
Through this series, we've highlighted the people that have made up a neighborhood, shining lights on the human aspects of community building. From the multi-generational bonds that make up family life in Gowanus and Sunset Park, to the multicultural ties created in the mid-century Navy Yard's female workforce, and finally, to the many stories of Canarsie and the different communities of people who have called this place home. Something that keeps coming up are notions of ownership in terms of a neighborhood's identity. When we talk about these things, inherently we are also talking about land, and usually it's in terms of land as real estate, but there is a distinction to be made. Real estate is a commodity, something to be owned and traded and contested. Land, on the other hand, can be viewed as a resource, a part of nature that sustains life on earth, and something that isn't owned per se, but harmoniously occupied. That's how the Lenape understood our relationship to land as something beyond commodity. Here's Joe Baker again. We do not have dominion over uh, this this land. We are integrally connected, um, genetically connected to the living earth. So we're not just walking upon the earth, we are in and of the earth. And we really have to um, we have to remember that and we have to honor that. And with that remembrance and honor comes a certain responsibility for all of us to care for Mother Earth. And um, that's, that's, that's how we see it. Um, and that's how we hope uh, all people can be better connected uh, to this beautiful living Earth that we're a part of. Now we're going to move forward in time to Canarsie in the late 1980s and early 90s, when Olga Rose Jones immigrated from Jamaica to Brooklyn in pursuit of new opportunities. One of the things I was very surprised at was Canarsie back then. Uh, struck me quite, to be quite like where I was coming from. Olga recorded her memories of Brooklyn at Canarsie Library in 2017. Her oral history is part of the library's Our Streets, Our Stories archive. I noticed in the nighttime, when it got dark, I used to see these lights blinking, you know? And um, I think you you maybe call them, is it fireflies? Yeah. Yes, but in, in my country, Jamaica, we call them peeny wally. <laughs> Anyway, over the years, I haven't seen that many penny wallies. Things have changed, maybe to that extent. And uh, another surprising thing is that you could, I think we used to see the stars, actually. At night, you could look up and see the stars. When Olga moved to Canarsie in the 80s, it was in the midst of a demographic shift. In the 1970s, Canarsie had been 98% white. It was a working class and middle class neighborhood of predominantly Jewish and Italian residents. And then two decades later, between 1990 and 2000, the neighborhood's proportion of black residents increased from 10% to 60%. Back then, you had more Caucasians living in the neighborhood. And that is one thing 
you would be reminded of like when it came to the 4th of July because when whenever you had you know the firecrackers and so you could hardly breathe by the time they'd finish Olga had a very specific goal when she came to the United States she was looking to buy a house I was very, very stubborn about the fact that I wasn't going to keep living in a rented place. I, I had to say to my husband then, I kept saying to him, look at this house. This is all the way up there, like in a real good neighborhood. It's only selling for $29,000. Of course, $29,000 back then was a whole lot of money. But to me, it never sounded like a lot of money. So I kept pointing out, and he said, we can't afford to buy our own house, is what he kept saying. So when we came here, I kind of said to him, I said, listen, if we're going to be living the same way, as we used to live back home. Why don't we just pack up and go back home? <laughs> Olga was determined. At the time, she worked at a milk factory in East New York and she saved her weekly salary. Then she started selling makeup with Avon and saved her income from that job too. I never ever saw what it looked like change. It was deposited in the bank. And when I got my other job at the college, the same thing. Whatever I was getting every two weeks went into the savings account. And that, that is how stubborn I was about the fact that I was not going to keep on living in a rented place. <laughs> yes, that, so. And her persistence paid off. And Olga and her husband managed to buy property in Canarsie. The neighborhood became their permanent home and they began to see others like them, immigrants and people of color, become their neighbors too. And that change didn't come without its share of conflict. In 1991, quote, racial bias incidents, as they were called at the time, started increasing in frequency. These were acts of violence and intimidation between whites and non-whites. And real estate agencies became particular targets. The Fillmore Real Estate Company in Canarsie was put under a court order to show homes to African Americans as well as to white people who were interested in moving into the neighborhood. In July of 1991, that agency was firebombed twice and received threats related to agents showing homes to black and brown people. Another real estate agency in the neighborhood received similar threats. Luckily, no one was hurt during the bombings. But the neighborhood felt unsafe to non-white people. Around the same time Olga and her husband finally bought their home, Carlisle Price, a black fifth grader at the time, started attending school in Canarsie. In the early 1990s, Carlisle was one of the only black kids in his school. He recorded his oral history with our Center for Brooklyn History back in 2017. When I got to school there, I think I was a month or two in when someone told me that a black family had tried to move into Canarsie and gotten burned out the year or two before. And it wasn't said to me, I don't think, in a, I, I don't remember it being said to me in a threatening way. I don't remember how I heard about it, but for me it was like, okay, watch yourself out here. I didn't want to be out there after dark. I didn't like that. There were times when I would actually walk the bus route home if I didn't have bus money and nobody had remembered to pick me up. I would just walk all the way because I knew once I got around Church Avenue, Kings Highway, I knew where I was, I was familiar with that area, I was gonna be okay. But I didn't want to be caught out there <laughs> at night. 
Canarsie has its own history of anti-integration protests and boycotts. During the 1972 to 1973 school year, after about 30 black students from Brownsville were enrolled in Canarsie's public schools, white parents took their children out of school in protest. For a total of seven weeks over the course of that school year, attendance was low enough to shut down many of the schools in the district. So it's not surprising that Carlisle felt unsafe attending schools there just a few decades later when issues of belonging and race were coming to the surface again. The series of racist incidents and the bombing of the real estate company in 1991 sparked anti-racism marches in Canarsie, one of which was led by the Reverend Al Sharpton, a prominent and controversial civil rights activist. Channel 11 News captured sound and interviews from another one of the marches. Here's one protester, a black woman who didn't give her name. He came out because we think this is a free country and you're entitled to live wherever you want to live. It was the Meanwhile, Paul Kana, a longtime white resident of Canarsie, told Channel 11 News that he didn't think there was a racial problem in the neighborhood at all. We have Chinese, we have Italians, we have blacks, we have Spanish, we have everybody here. And we get along fine. Also captured on tape was a group of young white people chanting Canarsie and holding a banner that read, Stop Racism, Kill Reverend Al Sharpton. You know, Krista, this snapshot of a protest 30 years ago demonstrates the differing ideas people have always had about who owns a place and who belongs. Right. These white teens who are chanting Canarsie, I think they're trying to say pretty aggressively that Canarsie belonged to them. Which is so strange to think about because neighborhoods, and especially neighborhoods in New York City, are constantly in flux. You know, maybe in the 1990s when these protests were taking place, Canarsie was going through a kind of identity shift. There were teepees going up alongside the Belt Parkway, and the neighborhood was in the middle of a turnover from being almost entirely white in the 1970s to a neighborhood that is today over 80% black. But if you just go back a few decades before then, you would find a really strong African-American community owning homes and running churches and businesses in Carnarsie that had been there since the middle of the 1800s. At that point in time, Canarsie belonged to its black residents, too. Right. That community, at the time called, quote, the Colored Colony, was located around the area that BPL's Canarsie branch and the Canarsie High School now occupy. In the mid-1800s, the area was a refuge for free black people trying to establish a foothold in New York State. Canarsie was not yet a part of Brooklyn. It was a rural suburb of the city, and it was also a place that many black residents of New York City came to escape violence from the New York City draft riots of the 1860s, when black people were being attacked by white people out of anger over the Civil War draft. The Colored Colony was a smaller version of Weeksville, which was a more well-known free black community that began to establish itself around the same time in what is today known as Crown Heights. There was even a road connecting Weeksville with Canarsie's Colored Colony, Hunterfly Road. According to Brooklyn's Last Village, a local history book about Canarsie, quote, residents of Weeksville would walk Hunterfly Road to Canarsie to visit their relatives on Sundays after attending church. 
We have a whole other Bard episode about Weeksville called Free Brooklyn, which you should listen to if you want to learn more. Yes, I definitely recommend that episode. And actually, one of our librarians, Peter Otis, wrote a very comprehensive blog post about Canarsie's black history. It's on our library website, and we will put a link to it in our show notes, as well as a link to that other Bard episode. To return to Canarsie in the 1990s, in the midst of this demographic shift, we can actually look back on that time with a bit of perspective. While researching for this episode, we came across a 2011 sociological study about Canarsie and how it has changed over the past few decades. Researchers actually found that though the racial makeup of the neighborhood changed completely, things like politics, neighborhood values, and economic conditions things that white residents might have said they were worried about changing really didn't. The researchers concluded comparing former white, Italian, and Jewish residents to predominantly black Caribbean residents of today, many of the more recent residents held the same kinds of jobs, shared the same views on family and home ownership, and even shopped at the same kinds of stores. Contrary to the expectations of white residents, the neighborhood is notable for how similar it is after integration to its earlier demographic profile, community life, and patterns of ethnic identified small businesses. We were listening to other Canarsie oral histories that are in our library archive, and we came across Miguel Mora's story. He moved to Canarsie in 2000 and recorded an oral history back in 2018 at Pattergat Library. He talked about just that, how the neighborhood changed so much and not at all in the time he's been a resident. Canarsie went through what's called a white flight scenario. Actually, it's a terminology that real estate people use in where they churn and turn over the housing in a neighborhood based on race. Miguel is referring to something that we might also call redlining today, a broad set of racist and discriminatory practices on the part of banks, real estate companies, and the government in order to make it harder for people of color to buy homes in certain neighborhoods. Instead, people of color are most likely going to find properties only in disinvested neighborhoods. Miguel is speaking specifically of racial steering by real estate agents. And they go around speaking to homeowners. People of color are moving into your neighborhood. People of color are moving into the neighborhood. Fear of property values going down. They're going to bring in elements They're going to do this in property values and crime and all these things. Propaganda. It's propaganda that the real estate people do. And the turnover begins. So it goes from 10% people of color. Canarsie now is about 90% people of color. Okay, And that happened within 10 years. And all that fear-mongering Miguel referenced... It didn't play out that way at all, he said. Today, property values in Canarsie have increased more than anything else. The owners, the people of color, have taken on the responsibility of improving their properties, improving their neighborhoods with businesses and other interests into the community. You have more people coming into neighborhoods, more affordable housing, or and some less affordable housing. But the improvement is there. It's visible. You walk the neighborhood, you ride the neighborhood, whatever way you want to do it, 
you can see the improvements. Krista, I'm just I'm rethinking about that Canarsie chant um, that those teens in the Channel 11 news clip were saying and how it was sort of a marker that they had more of a right to Canarsie than other people who wanted to move in and own homes. And it just strikes me that the name Canarsie is a Lenape name. We've arrived where we started in this episode and this mini-series with the original inhabitants of Brooklyn. It's hard to talk about a neighborhood without mentioning many stories at once. We've been circling Canarsie this whole episode, going back and forth in time, but I think that's okay. Sometimes you have to tell the story in circles to get a picture of the whole. Walking around Canarsie today, maybe listening to this episode, you might get the idea that we've been here before. The layers of stories of this neighborhood are not so different from the layers of stories you'll find throughout Brooklyn. I think so, and it's a good thing to remember for neighborhoods across the city. Ideas of ownership and who gets to belong are constantly being redefined by the newest residents of a place. But it is important to look back and see all the many stories that have come before It's humbling and maybe more important that we realize that we've all had a hand in building Brooklyn. Building Brooklyn is a miniseries from Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed podcast. It's produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. This episode was written by me, Adwa Aduse, and Virginia Marshall. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett-Kavoris, and Adwa Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website. Oral histories on this episode came from our Center for Brooklyn History's Voices of Crown Heights collection and our Our Streets, Our Stories archive. Our beta listeners on this episode were Melissa Marone and Lucretia Neal. That's it for this episode, and that's also it for our mini-series, Building Brooklyn. We'll be releasing new episodes soon on the Borrowed feed. Until then, keep building your communities. You don't have to wait long for more Borrowed episodes. We're about to drop our next season, all themed around the library's 125th birthday. Hop on over to bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts and subscribe to our Borrowed podcast feed so you won't miss our new episodes. And now, the trailer. On November 30th, 1896, Brooklyn, which was then its own city, adopted a resolution to establish a public library system. 125 years later, here we are, still going strong. See, we took a little trip, my buddy and me. We ended up at the library. I said, yo, Snappy D, let's go inside and take our minds for a little ride. Snappy this is a library wrap made by Crown Heights patrons in 1985. All year, we'll be looking back at different parts of our history to remember what the library means to its most important people, the Brooklynites who visit our branches. Now I see how much I can learn at the library. We are here at the library, Brooklyn Public Library. And how long did you come here? 
five days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I started coming here in third grade. She started coming in kindergarten. Kindergarten. So like your whole life? Yeah, probably. For the job placement, for the new immigrant, we are an informal educational center too. What could we do as rabbits? We could make soups and little rabbits. Words that come to mind when I think of BPL uh, Commons. I think the library is one of the few public commons in the United States. People of all different classes, races, ages interact here. No one's a customer. People just need to treat each other like fellow humans. Sometimes we fail, but often we succeed. I was eight years old and I still didn't know how to read. That's why, you know, the library actually means I can't even go there how much the library means to me. But that was kind of like where I grew up, like where I kind of really learned to my real place in the world and where I felt at home was a library. Uh, the library has been a part of saving my life. It's amazing how enriching it is when someone just says, can I help you? And they're sensitive and they care. In this season of Borrowed, we'll take a look at what the library was like 125 years ago, the radical ideas that founded public libraries across the country, as well as our missteps along the way. We'll also ask how libraries today are pushing for greater access than ever before. By eliminating late fines, you're building that goodwill. You're creating better patron relationships. And then some libraries who've been fine-free for a while have been able to show definitively that those policies have helped boost circulation and bring new, new people to the library. We're saying happy birthday to BPL all year long. Happy birthday, BPL. Happy birthday, BPL. Happy anniversary, Brooklyn Public Library. And happy birthday.